Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads uh, who are joining us here in person or perhaps also online. Uh, My name is Stephen and I serve on team here at Oasis uh, as the youth pastor. Uh, And it's my joint privilege to bring God's word uh, to us this morning. Uh, So as we come to Acts chapter 26, could I invite you to please join me in prayer? God, what a joy and a privilege it is to call you Father. Uh, We thank you for your great love and provision uh, for us. Uh, We thank you that you have provided us with your word. Uh, And as we come to it this morning, uh, we pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to help enlighten our eyes, help us to have our hearts softened to hear from you uh, and to understand the things that are in this passage. Uh, We commit our time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a fun fact about me, if you don't already know this, but I don't drink coffee. Uh, I love the smell of coffee, I just don't really like the taste. Uh, But that hasn't stopped people from trying to persuade me to become a coffee drinker. Uh, People have told me, just start by having a mocha, load up on the chocolate and then over time uh, just pull it back. It's kind of an acquired taste. Uh, But that hasn't worked so far. Uh, At my previous church, where my lead pastor was also my boss, uh, he tried to uh, persuade me to become a coffee drinker by offering uh, money as uh, kind of an incentive. Uh, He offered to pay for my coffee, uh, but then he offered to give me $5 to drink a coffee, and then $10, and then $20. Uh, As time went on, he kind of grew in his desire to persuade me to drink coffee. Uh, He even offered me $100 to drink a cup of coffee. Uh, My colleagues thought I was mad to still dig in my heels and refuse. But perhaps you might know that frustration, maybe not in relation to drinking coffee, uh, but maybe you've been trying to persuade someone of something and they just don't want to change. Maybe you've tried to share your faith with someone, but every time you keep trying to bring up Jesus, they just won't give ground when it comes to what they believe. Or maybe you're like me and digging my heels in uh, and not drinking coffee. Maybe you're like me and you're digging your heels in uh, and not wanting to change what you believe. It's a hard thing to try to persuade someone to change, uh, especially when you're trying to persuade them to become a Christian. And yet, in Acts chapter 26, that is exactly what we see Paul trying to do. He sets out to persuade his listeners to trust in Jesus. But before we dive deeper into Paul's message here, let's catch up on what's been happening with him. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time this morning, or perhaps you've missed a few weeks, we've been journeying through uh, the book of Acts. Uh, And so if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, uh, I'd love to encourage you to keep them open to Acts, uh, particularly to 26, as that's what we'll be looking at, uh, and we'll be jumping around a little bit. Last week, Adam preached from Acts chapter 21. Uh, And at the end of Acts 21, we see that Paul is taken into custody by the Romans in order to protect him from a group of Jews who were trying 
to kill him. Things don't get any better for Paul, uh, and so the Romans decide to send him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, uh, which you can hopefully see up on the screen uh, where those places are. Send them to, send, they want to send him to Caesarea to make him stand trial before the Roman governor there, who's called Felix. Now, a key verse that shapes what happens in the coming chapters is Acts chapter 23, verse 11, which says, the following night, which is the night before Paul is moved, uh, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify also in Rome. And in the next chapter in Acts 24, Paul goes on trial before Felix in Caesarea and he presents his case as to why he has been held captive. But Felix, though he listens, he's undecided at the end of Paul's defense as to what to do with Paul and so he keeps him in custody. Two years pass with Paul in custody and Felix is replaced as the Roman governor by Portius Festus. Uh, in Acts chapter 25, Paul is then tried by Festus, who wants Paul to return to Jerusalem to stand trial before the Jewish leaders yet again. But Paul declares his innocence in regards to the Jewish law, and as is his right as a Roman citizen, he appeals to be tried before Caesar in Rome. And so Festus starts to make plans to send Paul to Rome. A couple of days after Paul's trial before Festus, Festus is visited by some uh, local, by the local ruler, King Agrippa, and his sister Bernice. Uh, King Agrippa is the local Judean ruler, also known as Agrippa II. And he comes from a long line of Jewish rulers who have been closely connected to the Christian story. Uh, Agrippa's great-grandfather was King Herod the Great, the same Herod who killed all those babies around the time of Jesus' birth. Agrippa's great-uncle was Herod Antipas, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And then Agrippa's father, Agrippa I, had killed the disciple James and had also imprisoned another disciple, Peter. So Agrippa II knows a thing or two about Jewish history and the rise of Christianity. At the end of chapter 25, Agrippa and Bernice join Festus and other high-ranking military officers and men of, and prominent men of the city to hear Paul give yet another defense as to why he's been imprisoned. From Acts chapter 26, verses 2 to verse 23, Paul presents his case. And within it, we see that at the heart of his defense is the gospel message. In verse 6, Paul says, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. What is it that God had promised? We see Paul answer that in verse 23, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead 
would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This good news of Jesus in verse 18 will turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Don't you think that sounds like pretty good news? Well, it does to me, and there's a few nods and yeses, but Festus thinks otherwise. He interrupts Paul by shouting, you are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. To which Paul responds quite respectfully in verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. So this morning we're going to be exploring Paul's defense using that as a couple of our headings. We'll see that the message of the gospel is true and we'll see that the message of the gospel is reasonable and we'll also see that the message of the gospel is transformative. Paul states that the message of the gospel is true. According to the Collins Dictionary, if something is true, it is based on facts rather than being invented or imagined. It is, it is accurate and it is reliable. Christians believe this about the good news of Jesus. The early disciples believed this about Jesus. How else could such a story reach to the ends of the earth? But what about you? Are you convinced that the gospel is true? Could you explain why it is true to someone else? Thankfully, we have some historical evidence that supports the belief that Jesus really did live, that he really did suffer and die, and that he really did rise from the dead. I'd like to highlight just Uh, two historical records which are written by well-known non-Christian historians that point to Jesus being an actual person and that point to his death as an actual event. Around AD 93, Josephus, the renowned Jewish historian, wrote about James, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. In his report on the great fire of Rome that happened in AD 64, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote this, therefore to stop the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius, by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. You can tell he really likes Christianity, right? (laughs) These historians point us to the fact that Jesus lived in the first century and that he was executed under Pontius Pilate. 
As for the resurrection of Jesus, three key factors lend weight to its historical authenticity. Firstly, the tomb was discovered empty. Secondly, Jesus' disciples had real experiences with someone who they believed to be the risen Jesus. And thirdly, the Christian church was established and it grew as a result of the preaching of the disciples, which held the resurrection of Jesus at its center. Maybe you're here this morning and you're exploring what is this Christianity thing. Maybe you're a Christian and you're wanting to help share the true account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, If you'd like to further explore the evidence that exists, uh, then I'd love to recommend the following books which are up on the screen. Uh, The Case for Christ, which is written by Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee was a newspaper editor who set out unsuccessfully to disprove Christianity, instead putting his trust in Jesus as he examined the evidence. Uh, And the second book there is The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. As Paul declared in Acts chapter 26, verse 23, Jesus really is the Messiah who suffered Jesus really is the first to rise from the dead. Jesus really is the one who brings the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. For those who believe in Jesus, you can rest assured the message of the gospel is true. And as Paul also said, the message of the gospel is reasonable. Again, according to Collins' dictionary, in saying that something is reasonable, it means that there are good reasons why it may be correct. In Acts 26, the good news of Jesus that Paul declares aligns with hundreds and hundreds of years of Jewish customs as well as Old Testament teaching. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Paul isn't just making this up. In Acts 26, verse 3, Paul considers himself fortunate to be making his defense before Agrippa, who is well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. In verse 22, Paul says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And then in verse 27, Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa, perhaps like many of you here this morning, isn't hearing these things for the first time, and Paul knows it. Hence, he's helping Agrippa to try and connect all the dots. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, point forwards to Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, when God passes judgment on the serpent... He points to the fact that Jesus is the one who would crush the serpent's head. He would crush, he would be the one to crush the head of Satan. In Genesis 22, Abraham says to his son Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. If you know the story, God does in fact provide a ram for them. 
but that was a shadow. It was a foretaste of what was to come. Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb whom God would provide for the sins of the whole world. What about the prophets? What do they say that points ahead to Jesus? Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 53, verses 3 to 5. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. In Isaiah 9, verse 2, the prophet writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Can you see the connection between what Isaiah writes, between what Moses writes, and what Paul is saying in Acts 26? In verse 18, Paul is sent by Jesus to turn people from darkness to light. The message of light Jesus brings in verse 23 is the message of his own life, death, and resurrection and the salvation that comes through that. These are the things that Moses and the prophets said would happen. And the Jewish people have lived in this hope ever since. The gospel message is reasonable, and deep down, King Agrippa knows it, even if he's not willing to accept it. Further support for the reasonableness of the gospel message is that Paul's own life backed it up. In Acts 26, verse 4, he says, The Jewish people all know the way I have lived. Ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life, in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Paul lived his life consistent with the hope that he had as he waited for the Messiah. And it could be attested to by the community that he was in. Church, do you live in such a way that is consistent with what you believe to be true about Jesus? Does how you live align with what you preach? The message that we preach can be as true and as reasonable as they come, but if our credibility is in question, then more often than not, people will ignore what we say. Can the people in your life testify to your character as a follower of Jesus? Not just the people here at church, but those you rub shoulders with during the week, be it family at home, your colleagues at work, friends at uni, at school, at the shops while playing sport. Do you preach 
faithfulness, but then live a life of unreliability? Do you preach love, but then live a life of hate or indifference? Fathers, as you consider how you lead your family, does what they see in you make them want to love and follow Jesus more or less? Does how we live make the gospel message seem more or less reasonable to the people we are communicating this message to? The message of the gospel is true and the message of the gospel is reasonable. And thirdly, the message of the gospel is transformative. In verse 28, Agrippa asks, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? To which Paul responds, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening today may become what I am except for these chains. Paul hopes that those listening would have their lives transformed by the gospel just as his had been. You know, the bulk of today's passage details the transformation of Paul's life. And the passage breaks it down into kind of three clear sections that might also help us as we think about, well, how might I share my testimony with the people around me? Uh, We're not going to be looking at all these verses again on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, In verses 8 to 11, Paul describes his life prior to encountering Jesus. And he starts by asking his listeners, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? It's almost like he assumes it should be a totally acceptable thought. But then he's like, oh wait, that was me. Paul didn't believe that Jesus had been raised to life. Instead, Paul was on a mission to do everything that he could to oppose the name of Jesus. He put Christians in prison. He signed off on death warrants for Christians. He tried to get Christians to renounce their faith in Jesus. And he was so obsessed with this mission of his, he even traveled to cities outside of Israel just to hunt down Christians. This is Paul before his encounter with Jesus. It was on one of those journeys to hunt Christians that he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And this forms the second part of his testimony. Verses 12 to 18 in Acts 26 provide a fairly lengthy description of his encounter with Jesus. And in case you're wondering, not everyone's encounter is going to be as blinding uh, or as vivid, perhaps, as Paul's was, and that's okay. You know, what's important is that there is an encounter with Jesus. And then after that encounter, things are different, which brings us to the third part of Paul's testimony. 
Now, after that encounter that he had with Jesus, Paul's life was radically changed forever. And we see this in verses 19 to 23. Paul didn't go back to persecuting Christians. Instead, he was obedient to what he heard Jesus say during their encounter, starting in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then in all Judea, Paul started preaching. He preached that people should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Rather than persecuting Jesus and his followers, Paul had now become Christ's biggest advocate. No wonder Festus shouted, you are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. It was an insane transformation of Paul's life. But Paul was not insane. His life had just been changed by the true, reasonable, and transformative message of the good news of Jesus. Now, there are many competing messages and stories in our world today, vying for our attention, vying for our time, our energy, and our money. I was strongly reminded of this a couple of weeks ago when I went and watched a film called The Sound of Freedom. I know that a number of you have also gone and watched this film over the last couple of weeks. For those who haven't seen it, uh, the basic storyline from Angel Studios is this. After rescuing a young boy from ruthless child traffickers, a federal agent learns the boy's sister is still captive and decides to embark on a dangerous mission to save her. With time running out, he quits his job and journeys deep into the Colombian jungle, putting his life on the line to free her from a fate worse than death. The way the story was told in the film was made the time just fly by. It was one of the most gripping movies that I have watched. I don't know about you, for those who have seen it, but this movie made me wrestle with my emotions. It made me wrestle with reality, and it drove me to want to take action. Here was a story that's true, that's reasonable, that's transformative, As I processed how I was feeling and what I might do next with the things I had seen and heard, I was deeply convicted by quite a simple question. What about the gospel? Child sex trafficking is a grievous evil that exists in our world and we should do all that we can to end it. But I would argue that there is something of a greater priority that is happening in our world that we also need to address. There are people in our own suburbs, living in houses perhaps right next door to us, who are facing an eternity of judgment and separation from God. If you and I have been convicted of the true, reasonable, and transformative message of the gospel... And shouldn't that stir our hearts? Shouldn't that stir our emotions to want to see these people saved? Shouldn't that drive us to action? Shouldn't that drive us to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the hope that God would save them? 
And if it doesn't, we should ask ourselves, why not? What could be more important than to see people turn from darkness to light, to see people turn from the power of Satan to the power of God? Let's pray. Oh God, help us to not worry about what people think of us, whether they respect us or think we are crazy. Rather, remind us daily of who you are and who we are in Christ. Give us the courage to speak the truth of the gospel to those who need to hear it so desperately. And may many of those to whom we witness truly turn to you and receive him in whom is life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.